In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have gotten to hear kind of the beginnings of Jesus over the Christmas season. And we have four different Gospels, and they come at it from four different viewpoints, which is good. It's good to have that. In the Gospel of Luke, we have the Nativity story. Jesus begins as a baby in the uh, stable. And the Gospel of Luke is the Gospel to the poor. So you have the poor folks show up, the shepherds. In the Gospel of Matthew, you have a Nativity story as well. But there, you get that first chapter as a whole big genealogy because Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and it was important for them to know that Jesus came from David all the way down through till him. So that was good. And then you have the nativity story in Matthew. But there, since Jesus is the king of the Jews, you have the, the three kings, the three wise men show up, because that fits Matthew's theme. Gospel of Mark, we didn't hear much over Christmas because he doesn't have a nativity story. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus pops up full-blown at age 30, goes to the Jordan River, gets baptized, boom, he's doing stuff. More healing miracles in Mark than any other Gospel, even though it's the shortest Gospel. But today, we have the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John is different. The other three are called synoptics, which means similar or the same. And they do things chronologically. First this happened, and then this happened, and so forth. Not in John. John moves things around to fit his themes. John was the only disciple that made it to old age. Everybody else got killed, even though he was exiled. So John has a little more, a little more distance, a little more perspective on things of what happened. And he goes at it in a different way because he has a Greek audience. And you can tell that this includes Greek philosophy, Greek thought, and it's more of a theological gospel. John doesn't start out when Jesus is baptized like in Mark. He doesn't start out when Jesus is a baby, like in Matthew and Luke. John goes all the way back before the beginning of time. Listen to how John starts out. It sounds just like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning. That's familiar too, isn't it? Well, in the beginning, but then he takes off from there. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Wow. That, 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 that's different. John is saying that Jesus is God giving us the Word. You know, like sometimes you get the Word on things for good or for ill. Like uh, your boss comes in and gives you the Word. Oh, you got to work over the holidays. Oh, rats. Or, you know, you're meeting your new possible daughter-in-law and your wife gives you the word don't say anything stupid when we meet these people or you know you get the word you're you're fired or there, there's good things too like we get the word ah we won the lottery oh, oh our our daughter is pregnant we're going to have grandchildren oh our you know whatever we we can get the word for ill or for good what john is saying is that jesus is god giving us the word like who he is who God, what God's nature is, that Jesus is the answer to that. The term in Greek is logos, and that translates to word, but it also is where we get our English word logic from. He's saying that Jesus is the logic of God, that if you want to understand who God is, you look at Jesus, because he's a chip off the old block. 
And you can tell who the Lord is by watching what Jesus did. Now, in the Old Testament times, they had some kind of maybe different ideas about who Yahweh was and that, that he was, you know, punishing. And the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus, our text says. So people may have had a different notion. Even John the Baptizer, we heard a couple Sundays ago, sent disciples to say, are you the one who's to come or, or do we seek another? Because Jesus wasn't doing much slashing and burning like John thought the Messiah should. Instead, he was, you know, having lunch with a lot of people and talking to crooked tax collectors and laborers and fishermen, religious people, women of ill repute. Didn't make any difference. He was out there making connections and relationships with people. And John thought, wow, that doesn't sound like the, uh, the Old Testament God that I was thinking about. Jesus is what makes sense of God for us. I was reading a, a commentary by Dr. William Barclay on John, and he included one kind of funny little section. He said there was a, a little girl, and they had been going through in the Bible, in the Old Testament, some of the more harsh, judgmental, bloodthirsty you know, battles going into the promised land and all that. And she felt that she had to make a, an apology for God to to uh, kind of give a, a, a reason for God. And so when she got done, she ended by saying, well, all of that happened before God became a Christian. <laughs> and, and in some ways, that's kind of a good way to look at it, that our picture of who God was before he became a Christian, you know, before Jesus came, is quite a bit different. It, 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 you know, it's not the same at all. We see Jesus doing things that people before probably didn't think God would do. Grace and mercy came through Christ. We see him being accepting of people and being open. And the only people he ground up were people who were real religious and thought they knew everything already. That's who God is. That makes sense of God. Not only is Jesus like God, because he is God. But in John, we find out God is like Jesus. So we can get a better idea. And then it goes on to say uh, that he, uh, the word became flesh. Now that had to have blown the Greeks' minds because they believed when somebody spoke a word, it, it took on a life of its own and affected people for three, four generations which we might think is kind of wacky, but the more I've dealt with dysfunctional families over the years, the more I think there's something to it, where I've seen words of shame go and affect families for three, four generations. But I've also seen words of praise and acceptance that affected people and families for three or four generations. But when they heard that the word became flesh, that must have really <laughs> excited them, that, that God's word to them took on flesh and, and dwelt among us. That Jesus literally moved into the neighborhood. He you know, went through the same stuff we do and had the same wacky hometown people who wanted to kill him. And you know, went through all that. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> In my first parish years ago, we were looking at this passage and uh, I, I, I thought I'd tweak this a little bit and I said to the group, I said, uh, Jesus moves into your neighborhood. He moves next door across the street. What do you think about that? And there was dead silence. And finally one guy said, well, 
I suppose it would be nice for the children. <laughs> he had heard that Jesus loved children, I guess. But I got the distinct impression that he didn't think it would be that good for him. Uh, Jesus moving into the neighborhood. What does that mean? Does that mean our beer and brats block parties are off? Does that mean he, 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 would he come over and watch the Vikings with us? Or if he were here, you know, the Colts? What does... Does, does it, if, I, if the lawnmower wouldn't start, or if I hit my thumb with a hammer, would I have to learn a whole new vocabulary with Jesus? Would I have to go, doggone, racky, snacky, oh, sugar? I, you know, uh, would, you know, would it go like that? Or what would it mean for Jesus to move into the neighborhood? He was, he was not that convinced. And, and another, <laughs> another story from my first parish. Uh, had a young woman by the name of Melissa who was a, an occasional at, attender at church, but her mother was regular as clockwork. She was a good Norwegian Lutheran, and when the doors were open, she was there. And her daughter wanted to get married. And so uh, her mother said, well, you're, you're getting married in the church, aren't you? Well, yeah, yeah, she said. Well, you have to go talk to Pastor Cal. Do I have to take Rick along? She said, <laughs> Rick hates church. She said, yes, you have to take Rick. He's got to go meet him and set up things and premarital counseling and the wedding plan, the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, gosh, she said. So she brought Rick. <laughs> I'll never forget the look. She brought Rick in, you know, kind of dragged him in by the hand into my office. He looked like a dog that was on a leash that was being dragged down the sidewalk to the vets to get neutered. You know, he, he, he just... It came in and uh, and I you know so we talked a little bit and I said uh, wh why do you uh, why do you want to get married in the Christian church and uh, she spoke up quickly so Rick didn't say something stupid and uh, she said well you know I've just always pictured myself walking down the aisle in my white dress and the stained glass windows and so forth I just always pictured that and I said oh. I thought maybe it was because you wanted a word from God as you entered this new part of your relationship. Well, well, yeah, 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 that too, she said. <laughs> and I said, what about you, Rick? He says, uh, <clears throat> well, you know, I, I believe in God and all that. Uh, and if we have kids, I'd probably, you know, bring them to Sunday school, meaning drop them off, but, you know, not attend himself. Uh, but I, I just, I really don't feel like I want to give up all of my things I enjoy at this time. And I, I said, well, d does, is that what church means to you? That you give up in everything that's fun for you? Everything that you enjoy? Well, uh, kind of. <laughs> I knew that Rick didn't want Jesus moving into his neighborhood. I could tell that. It was as if he thought, and I think a lot of people do, that Jesus was going to be the ultimate buzzkill in their neighborhood. That that was the end of all fun. Instead of, I came to bring life and light and our Old Testament lesson today, the young women will dance and the young men and the old will be merry and, you know, other parts of the Old Testament. The mountains will drip with sweet wine when the Messiah comes. Forgetting that Jesus' first miracle was he made about 150 gallons of the best wine they ever had. The wedding feast of Cana. It'll be, there will be joy, but, but mm, not so sure about that. Not so sure. And the other thing is that Jesus, when he came to be in our neighborhood, that means God knows what we're doing. He knows what we struggle with. 
I saw a play, it's called uh, Green Pastures. And in the play, it's kind of a fantasy. God is in heaven, and he's looking down at earth, and he's kind of shaking his head, worried. And the angel Gabriel comes in with his horn tucked under his arm, and he says, is it time to blow the trumpet? <laughs> and the Lord said, no, no, don't blow the trumpet yet. And Gabriel says, well, maybe we should send a messenger like King David or Moses or something like that. Or, or maybe one of the uh, prophets, Isaiah or Jeremiah. And the Lord, without turning back, said, no, I'm not going to send anybody. This time, I'm going myself. The Word made flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. That's God's Word to us, that He loves us enough to do anything, whatever it takes to win us back. That is God saying, I, I, I know. I've been there like Huck Finn. I know what you're doing, and I care. And that's why I sent my son, the Word, made flesh. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.